New this morning, a recent trend called Dry January. The Dry January Challenge. Dry January, probably familiar with it by now, challenging people to go without alcohol for the entire month. Millions of people do it every year. Millions and millions of people do it. Why is this idea about Dry January so popular? It's really about revisiting our relationship with alcohol. Really to reduce the stigma around those who overconsume alcohol. Better sleep, weight loss, and saving money are just a few reasons why people extend the challenge throughout the rest of the year. Instead of Dry January, try Damp January, and February, and March, and so on. There's been a lot of buzz about alcohol lately, including so-called dry January. Back in 2022, 35% of drinking-age adults in the U.S. skipped alcohol during the first month of the year. That was an increase from 21% in 2019. Those numbers are according to the food and drink research firm CGA. But are Americans really drinking less overall, and should we be? Our guests help us break down some of the national trends around alcohol consumption in the U.S. after the break. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Joining us from Washington is Aaron White. He has a Ph.D. in neuroscience, and he's a senior scientific advisor to the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Aaron, welcome back to 1A. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Also with us, Christina Mayer. She's a PhD in epidemiology, and she's a social epidemiologist and associate professor in the Department of Behavioral and Community Health Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Professor Mayer, welcome to 1A. Thank you. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Erin, now get us up to speed here. For, for a lot of folks, dry January is coming to an end, so people have been thinking a lot about not drinking. When I go to the store, I see a lot more non-alcoholic beverages for sale. Bottom line, are Americans drinking less now than they have been? What did the trends tell us? Well, it turns out that's kind of a complicated uh, question. Yes and no. Uh, There certainly is a a groundswell of interest in uh, taking a break from alcohol. I mean, clearly all of the low and no alcohol beverages you see are kind of a hint to that, that consumers are interested in those options. Uh, Dry January, obviously, as as the uh, intro suggested, has really caught on. And I think that tells us that uh, there's a large swath of Americans who are interested in thinking more about alcohol, you know, asking themselves why they drink, when they drink, how much they drink, um, and really looking at alcohol more closely. And uh, But at the same time, if you look at some of the harms from alcohol in the United States, they continue to go up. I mean, deaths from alcohol jumped 25% during the first year of the pandemic. Uh, and um, total sales, which we think reflects consumption in the United States, has been going up for years. And it went up uh, it, the biggest amount in 2020 over the last 50 years. So we seem to be moving in two directions at once. Aaron, I'd love to ask you sort of what you make of the dry January phenomenon. You heard in that montage a lot of positing about why people do it, why they're curious about it, what motivates them to do it. What do you make of the phenomenon uh, itself when you sort of look at this broader conversation about uh, alcohol consumption in this country? Well, first of all, I think it's fascinating how how much that has just picked up um, and how many people are interested in that. And I, I think what it tells us is that, again, people are really thinking a little bit more about this this drug that they put in their bodies. And they're, they're curious what it's like to not drink to relax at night and to not always drink to socialize. So I think it's wonderful. I think anytime we engage in uh, health-related behaviors that could harm us, it's beneficial to step back and take a look and be more mindful. Now, not everybody's going to um, stop drinking after January. I mean, lots of people go back to drinking. But the research suggests, uh, the research that we have so far, 
suggests that uh, people tend to drink less six months later if they've participated in dry January, even if they don't make it all the way through uh, what's now being called as damp January. So there's some value clearly in just taking a pause and asking ourselves, what is this drug that we like and why do we like it? And what are some alternatives that we could cultivate uh, to address the uh, reasons that we drink alcohol without drinking the alcohol? So I think it's, I just think it's great. Christina Mayer, I had a, a physical. I went for a checkup a couple weeks back and my doctor asked me how many drinks I have in a, in a given week. <laughs> I said how many drinks I have in a given week. And then there wasn't really follow-up to that. And it sort of left me wondering, um, what is the right answer? What's the what's the amount of drinks one is supposed to be having in a week or is not harmful in a week? I'm curious just sort of what the science says about um, the effects of alcohol on our health. It seems like we've been getting a lot of mixed messages or there just isn't a whole lot of clarity there. That's a great question. Um, and I do think there's a lot of confusion, um, people, how much they really should or should not be drinking. So traditionally in this country, um, NIAAA has defined uh, sort of heavy alcohol use as more than seven drinks a week for women and more than 14 drinks a week for men. And that was based on a lot of the research around um, sort of other sorts of harms related to alcohol, um, but not specifically around cancer. So in recent years, I think there's been a lot more attention to the potential harmful effects of alcohol consumption at much lower levels of consumption. So for example, in Canada, just recently, their panel of advisors suggested lowering the recommended amount of um, alcohol consumption that is considered not harmful to two drinks a week, where it used to be 10 drinks a week. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we know that three to six drinks a week is actually associated with higher increased risk of a many different types of cancer. And Christina, do you, do you think that the U.S. could benefit from similar guidelines? I wonder sort of from a policy perspective what you make of that change that you're referring to in Canada. I think it's a really important um, change that has been made. Um, I don't think we have necessarily done the best job in this country of sort of publicizing um, the myriad harms that we know that are linked to drinking. And um, <laughs> there are many reasons for that. Um, and I think that the first step is really just to be honest and upfront and do a better job messaging about the different harms that we know. Um, for example, using for um, honest labeling on um, on. Uh, bottles of beer and other places with a QR code, for example, to sort of say, hey, look, did you know that this beer that you're drinking is associated with increased risk for breast cancer, for example? I want to bring in another voice into the conversation from Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is Katie Oluwatoyan. Uh, she's founder of the Sober Black Girls Club, a nonprofit organization that provides support and resources to black girls, women, and nonconforming folks practicing sobriety in recovery or considering it. Katie, thank you very much for being with us. Appreciate it. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start with your story uh, and to hear why you decided to stop drinking alcohol. Uh, so I guess my story begins in New York, um, where I'm from. Grew up in the daughter of two Nigerian Muslim immigrants um, who came to the U.S. for a better life. So they were really, you know, strict in regards to our upbringing, school, how to get good grades, um, into multiple after-school programs, just really striving to be, I guess, what the society deems mm -hmm. um, a successful adult. So after high school, I went to college. I ended up going to law school, graduated law school in about in 2017. Um, I was ready to come back to New York, where I'm from. You know, uh, had a lease to this beautiful apartment on the water. Um, was able to 
uh, afford a brand new car. I had a job lined up. Like it was supposed to be honestly one of the happiest moments of my life, mm. but it wasn't. I was really sad and depressed and I had no idea why I couldn't put, I couldn't put a pin on it. Um, and to, I guess, cope with my depression. I didn't know at that time what I was experiencing with depression, but to cope with my, um, what my feelings, I just drank, right? That That's the tool that I had at that time. So I drank for about a year um, until I decided to get help because my life was clearly falling apart. And I went to see a therapist and the first thing she suggested was that I stop drinking. And I'm looking at her like, what does my drinking have to do with anything? Um, at that point, regardless of the degrees and my experiences, I wasn't too, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on about mental health. Um, and addiction wasn't even a word like in my vocabulary, just because again, um, I came from a, a household where no one drank. I started drinking in college, like literally maybe 2021. 20, so it just didn't, it was just bizarre. The word in itself, stop drinking, um, the phrase stop drinking, the word addiction, sobriety, they were just all very foreign to me. Um, so I left her office and I went back out and started to drink mm -hmm. until the following year when life became unbearable. And I took her um, advice to stop drinking and I realized I, I couldn't. And I had to accept that at that point I was in a physical um, addiction. So my journey from there just went about sobriety in regards to the physical manifestation I was feeling of no longer drinking, developing better coping mechanisms. And then it's also the self-recovery of how, um, how did I find myself here? One, and where I was really upset and depressed, I realized through therapy that I had really low self-esteem and that my the self-esteem that I did have was really based on all my accolades and me being this cookie-cutter token Black girl. And when I was no longer in the setting of like of, of, an, of a school setting of where I'm doing 10 things at once, sorority mm -hmm. girl, working at the hotel, United Student Government, A, B, and C, when I was placed into a nine to five setting of just working and I, I lost my self-esteem. Like a person with coping mechanisms or anything of the sort would have probably went and found a hobby. Mm -hmm. That never crossed my mind. So a part of my journey since then was just really one... Um, overcoming the physical the physical part of addiction, right? But then also getting to to the bottom or getting to yeah, the bottom of what led me to to drink and overconsume. Um so Sober Blackless Cup came about in 2018. In 2020 we became a, a collective. And at that time, you know, the pandemic happened and I started to receive emails um from other girls who could relate to um, my blog post, I guess overall, the common theme is who are we when we're not working, producing, right? Or taking care of, of folks. So that was commonality. And that's how we became a collective. Erin, what I'd love for you to respond to the degree to which COVID certainly complicated a lot of people's relationship with alcohol. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Katie for sharing her story. I think that lots of people are going to resonate uh, with her story. And I think that what the pandemic did uh, was essentially pulled the curtain back and made it more obvious that lots of us drank to cope. And it's uh, an insidious approach to uh, ha having a relationship with alcohol because when you drink to cope, it tends to work initially until it doesn't. And then it tends to leave you feeling worse. And then that motivates you to drink more to cope with that. And so, you know, for a long time, we approach the way that we think about substances and substance use as uh, being about pleasure. 
And certainly people do use alcohol and other drugs to feel pleasure. But there's a whole other aspect to our relationships with drugs, and that is using them to cope with problems. I think COVID really brought that into sharp focus. Uh, During the pandemic, people lost some of the protective factors that we had uh, to keep us from overdoing it, whether it's food or alcohol or other drugs. I mean, social connectedness and a sense of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And it added uh, factors that we know are uh, that increase the risk of overindulging, such as uh, fear of the future, you know, just anxiety, stress in general. And so it really was kind of a double whammy, reducing our protective factors and adding risk factors. And I think that's one of the themes that's come out of alcohol research during the pandemic thus far, is that a lot of people drank less, particularly if they just couldn't afford it, and they didn't really care too much about drinking before the pandemic. But people who were drinking to cope uh, before the pandemic tended to lean in and drink more. And there were probably a lot of people that found themselves, um, you know, just suddenly drinking more during the pandemic, even if they weren't drinking much before. So I I really think that's one of the themes that's come out of uh, research on alcohol use during the pandemic. Christina Mayer, I want to bring you in here. And, you know, I think a lot of what Katie's talking about is sort of nuance and um, the the need for uh, a more holistic sense of um, who's having difficulty with this and and how to um, deal with that that particular problem. And um, I wonder if if in the science there's been a similar amount of soul searching and um, how science is approaching sort of how the, how how this d- differs community to community. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we see a lot of what we call alcohol inequities, which basically people who have minoritized racial and ethnic identities or minoritized sexual and gender identities experience a greater number of alcohol-related harms at the same level of alcohol consumption. And um, there are many reasons why in this country people tend to sort of frame these as individual-level problems, but I like to think of these things sort of as more structural, um, looking at population patterns and um, things like racism, stigma, stress, lack of economic resources. There are many, many things (laughs) such as that that are really... um, built into our system and our structures, our social systems in this country. Um, There has not been that much research on that, but we are beginning to see um, how these things, I mean, these cause stress, right, which causes drinking to cope, um, as well as sort of the recovery processes for whom access to treatment is easiest versus not. Um, There are many reasons why this is really important, and I think it's um, really, for me, as an epidemiologist, really essential to highlight these differential patterns um, by groups and by resources, et cetera, that exist within the U.S. Aaron White, I know that you collect and see so much data, uh, and I started off the show by asking you sort of what the trends we've seen broadly in the U.S. are when it comes to drinking more, drinking less. When you break down those numbers, what do they say about uh, the sort of inequities that uh, Christina was talking about just a moment ago? Well, uh, you know, if people can think back to around 2015, um, you might remember that uh, we were talking a lot back then about uh, what we call deaths of despair, uh, which are deaths that are related to sort of a loss of hope uh, in the future and loss of economic opportunity, uh, etc. And at the time, most of those deaths, more of those deaths, and these are deaths involving suicide, alcohol and other drug overdoses and alcohol-associated liver cirrhosis, more of those deaths were happening among middle-aged, white, particularly males in rural areas. But right around the time those reports came out, everything turned uh, in an interesting direction. And by that, I mean that Suddenly, while deaths from alcohol were going down among black Americans and Hispanic Americans, they turned a corner and started going up. And so in the last seven or so years, even before the pandemic, it seems that there was an increase in harm just pretty much across the board. But there's no question, when you add in 
all of these things that we now refer to as social determinants of health that add friction to one's life, it just adds to uh, that stress and the need to cope. And then when you have less access to resources, you're less likely to get out of that cycle. Uh, and I think there's a broader issue too, and it's and I think Katie kind of alluded to this a moment ago, and that is the way that we think about mental health in general in this country. Um, we need to revisit this because we we still compartmentalize physical health and mental health, and we also tend to compartmentalize mental health and substance use disorders, and we we like to treat these things as though they're all different and fixable on their own, and we ignore the environments in which people live. Uh, so violence in neighborhoods and safe transportation and these, these sorts of things. And so when you go to your doctor and your doctor checks your vitals and tells you you're healthy, they usually don't ask about alcohol and they generally don't ask you if you're, if you are suicidal. And so I think that drinking yourself into oblivion and being suicidal, those are threats to your physical well-being. And so I think we need to revisit how we compartmentalize these conditions and put people in the context in which they live and to recognize that the environments in which people live play a huge role in health-related outcomes. I want to play a clip here from, from 1991. There was a 60 Minutes report about the so-called French paradox, and Morley Safer interviewed scientists asking why French people could eat so much rich food and yet have fewer heart attacks. Let's listen to that. Well, uh, my explanation is, of course, the consumption of alcohol. There has been for years the belief by doctors in many countries that alcohol, in particular red wine, reduces the risk of heart disease. Now it's been all but confirmed. All but conclusive there, according to that report. Christina Mayer, why was that myth of the, the French paradox able to persist for so long? So Dr. White just sort of referred to that a little bit. Um, there was this idea, what we noticed, what was called the J-shaped curve, right? Mm -hmm. So people who consume no alcohol at all seem to be slightly less healthy than those who drank at moderate levels. Um, and then that dose-response relationship sort of kicked in beyond, say, one drink a day. Um, and um, once again, Dr. White sort of mentioned many of the reasons why that is actually the case. But one of those is really sort of this idea about um, reverse causation, right? That people who drink at moderate levels tend to be wealthier and have sort of more um, you know, conditions in their lives that make it sort of easier to drink at low levels and not experience related harms. One other point that has not been mentioned yet that I think is important to um, bring up is something that's called the quote-unquote sick quitter effect. And the idea here is that let's say that you maybe drank, you had one drink a day, and then you, come, you have a new chronic health condition, um, cancer or cardiovascular disease or anything else in your life. Um, and if you are sick for other reasons, you're more likely to quit drinking fully and abstain from alcohol. And so therefore, sort of this group of people who are pure abstainers. Um, it's mixed together those uh, with people who sort of are not drinking for health reasons. And that was one of the reasons that relationship was obscured for a long time. Um, plus, you know, many of us like to have a glass of red wine with dinner. And I think there's some sort of, you know, there are important cultural reasons why this myth sort of has existed for so long. After the break, we'll hear from a mixologist who went from owning one of Washington's most well-known bars to mixing non-alcoholic drinks. We'll hear from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on alcohol in America with Christina Mayer, social epidemiologist professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Also, Aaron White, senior scientific advisor at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. I'd like to welcome another voice to the conversation. Joining us now from Washington is Derek Brown, the owner of Positive Damage, Inc., a wellness company. He's also the author of Mindful Mixology, a comprehensive guide to no and low alcohol cocktails. And uh, Derek spent most of his adult life in the hospitality and service industry, owning a very successful bar in D.C. called the Columbia Room, I should say. 
I remember interviewing you, Derek, way back when I was at Marketplace. The Federal Reserve was celebrating its 100th birthday, and I went to you to create a Federal Reserve-themed cocktail, and you you invented the not-so-easy money, which, if I remember right, included bourbon, brandy, sherry, bitters, lemon juice, uh, lemon chartreuse, and I won't forget this. You garnished it with a crumpled dollar bill. Um, Why did you give up alcohol? Uh, what, What prompted you to do it? Hey, David, it wasn't that cocktail, I'll tell you. That cocktail turned out pretty good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's glad, I'm glad you bring up that time because I, the reason that I gave up alcohol had a lot to do with the fact that I was sort of immersed in this industry from a very young age. Mm. You know, I started working in bars and restaurants when I was 16 years old. And um, all along, I kind of learned a certain way of drinking that was kind of normal, you know. And that involved, you know, being, you know, drinking multiple times a week, having lots of drinks every night. And, you know, I didn't even realize that it was affecting me and how badly it was affecting me until I got older. You know, like I started in my mid-20s and by the time I was in my 30s. I started to notice that there were a lot of negative outcomes for it. You know, my my personal health, my finances, my relationships were all kind of strained. Um, and that's a polite way of putting it, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I had to make a change. And, you know, I had issues around mental health and I had issues around drinking. Um, and so I started addressing those at the same time. Um, and at that point... I didn't give up drinking. I actually continued to drink for a little while in a mindful way, in the sense that I had maybe two drinks a month at best. Come 2019, I decided I would just stop because alcohol was no longer serving me the way that I wanted it to, and it really didn't have a place in my life. And that was kind of scary for me in many ways because I am you know, a bartender. I've made my entire career off of alcohol. And so uh, I was very scared at what came next. And so I had to really take a moment to talk to my friends and family and people around me and say, what's next? I mean, what do I do? Go into real estate now or something entirely different? But uh, as I sat with it more and I had more conversations, I realized a lot of people, even if they hadn't grown up in the industry, were in a similar place to me, that they wanted to change the way they drank, whether they reduced or eliminate alcohol. And so I realized there was an opportunity there for me to talk about great cocktails and great you know, products, but they weren't um, with alcohol. They could be no or low alcohol. It's common, I think, here in New York where I live or if I visit in D.C. to look at a menu now, a drink menu, and see that there are um, a host of of non-alcoholic options. And I wonder how representative that is, as you see it, of a a broader trend in this country. Am I I looking at a very limited pool of two major cities in the U.S. on on the East Coast? Or is this something that's proliferating more? Is there more wide availability of of non-alcoholic options? Now, I think you probably are looking into the limited pool, and, and, and I feel like on my social media, all I get is information about dry January. But when it comes down to it, I think there's a lot of people and a lot of places that aren't, aren't really aware of the non-alcoholic products and the, the fact that you can make great non-alcoholic cocktails. Um, so I think that you know, part of my mission and why I'm, you know, why I'm doing what I do is to show people that you can make these great uh, non-alcoholic cocktails and that you know they're they're widely available 
you have to kind of, you know, if maybe if you live in an area that's not New York, you might have to dig a little bit, but but it's out there. And so recently we had a mindful drinking fest uh, in Washington, D.C. that brought together uh, a couple hundred people um, to taste these non-alcoholic products. And uh, we had a mindful mixology competition where we had six local bartenders compete. And they made incredible cocktails with things that, you know, um, really rival their alcoholic counterparts. So, you know, it felt like at this, you know, festival that we weren't missing anything at all. And, and I think that that's another part of it that I try to get out there too, that for, for a lot of people and myself included, when you think of reducing or eliminating alcohol, you think you're giving up something. But in fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I found that there's so many new options out there, right, in terms of what you can drink. Um, so many wonderful non-alcoholic products, beers, wines, bitters, everything that you could get before is there. And so um, I'm out there trying to be the Pied Piper of no and low alcohol cocktails and help people find this information. Uh, a couple months back, there was this clip of two actors from the TV show House of the Dragon discussing um, their, fa- their favorite drink, and it went viral. What's your drink of choice? A Negroni. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Mm. With Prosecco in it. Oh, stunning. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Derek, as a, as a mixologist, what your version is of, the, of a non-alcoholic Negroni, if such a thing is possible. Yeah, it's totally possible. And I, I, one of the reasons it's so funny is because, you know, a lot of bartenders are like, of course it contains Prosecco. But I guess most of the public are, are learning that for the first time. The Negroni, Negroni Spagliato is such a delicious drink and it's really easy to make non-alcoholic as well. And it, it tastes nearly identical to the, to the original one, but it also tastes delicious in itself. So one of the things that I start with is using a Campari substitute, right? Campari is what's usually used in it, but you can use a non-alcoholic bitter product. Now, one of the ones that I really like is by Wilderton. They make a, a non-alcoholic bittersweet aperitivo. Uh, Liars also makes one that's that's really tasty, and so uh, does another company called Wilfrid's. It has a sort of bitter aperitivo with rosemary, which is really interesting. And then you can get a non-alcoholic sparkling wine, and there's lots of them out there. They're actually de-alcoholized wines. So one of my very favorites is called Thompson and Scott, and it has the label Naughty, N-O-U-G-H-T-Y. So it's kind of a double entendre. But it's those together make a delicious drink, and then you add a little uh, soda to it as well. And it's a perfect, um, uh, I'm sorry, no soda. I, 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 was, I was mixing it up with Aperol spritz. No, you do not add soda. No soda. <laughs> uh, Aaron, I want to go back to you. And you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, how Canada has changed its drinking guidelines. And I, I um, asked Christine about this. I want to put the question to you as well. How much of a, a conversation is ongoing about consumption of alcohol uh, in this country? Is there a conversation taking place right now about those guidelines uh, in the agency in which you work? Yes, absolutely. And across uh, other federal agencies as well. Uh, we tend to, at our institute, we tend to stick with whatever the USDA uh, dietary guidelines say for alcohol consumption. And the current recommendation is up to one drink per day for women, up to two drinks per day for men. Those are standard U.S. servings of alcohol, and it's per day, not in one weekend. Uh, But those recommendations get revised every five years. And so uh, agencies are currently working on the 2025 recommendations, which is hard to believe, but it's just a few years from now. And it's entirely unclear what those recommendations will look like. Uh, You know, we... (laughs) 
I think our approach is, is more to help people understand that there is no perfectly one-size-fits-all uh, approach to alcohol in your relationship with it, but it's very clear, as Dr. Mayer said, the evidence is, is pretty consistent that less is better. Uh, and so if you're going to drink, again, don't think of it as medicine that we just don't have that evidence anymore. Think of it as a treat, an indulgence, and try to keep it to a minimum just as you would other indulgences. But um, So I think in the next year or two, we'll have a better sense of what our recommendations will be in 2025. But right now, we just still stick with the current U.S. dietary guidelines. Christina Mayer, we've heard from two folks here who have uh, had to seek treatment for this. So Katie, first of all, Derek as well. And, and I want to ask you sort of at what point someone's alcohol use becomes such a problem that they need to, uh, they need to seek help. What kind of guidelines exist for that? So there's personal recognition, certainly recognition of those around that individual. But um, are there barometers or metrics that, that, you, that you point to? Well, um, I think that it, it's not around sort of the actual amount of alcohol that one person consumes. As I was sort of mentioned earlier, that could look very different for different people. Someone could be drinking what for someone else would be a pretty moderate level of alcohol, one drink a day or even less, and begin to experience social, economic, family consequences related to their alcohol consumption. So it's really, um, it's a person-by-person thing. We have our sort of our measures of alcohol use disorders, what back in the day was called alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence. We've moved away from that to sort of a fuller spectrum of an alcohol use disorder. And if you look at the symptoms that are sort of noted to see whether someone qualifies as having severe or moderate or minor AUD, uh, some of those have to do with physiological dependence on alcohol, but that's really the minority of questions that are asked. So a lot of it does have to do with what are the consequences in your life? Are you experiencing social problems? Um, are you relying too heavily on alcohol all the way up through a physiologic dependence? But um, it's a very wide range. And so I think that's one of the things around the messaging, around people sort of understanding and examining their own drinking patterns. Um, it's not an easy answer. You know, I couldn't just tell you don't have X number of drinks per week because then you have an alcohol use disorder or then it's sort of negatively affecting your life. So it has to sort of be an individual decision and really taking a, a holistic and broad approach to how, um, you know, the relationship that you have with alcohol. Derek Brown, um, try January was the, the peg for this conversation. And you mentioned it's coming up on your, your Twitter feed. Um, I think what's interesting to me about it is it's kind of a forcing mechanism to get folks to think about this or, or talk about it. Um, and I'd love to have you comment on that, the kind of conversations that you've had as a result of this kind of unofficial month long holiday. Uh, I don't know whether you think it's it's good or bad, but um, I, I wonder what you would tell somebody who has dabbled in this over the last 30 days um, and maybe just comment on the, the potential efficacy of it as sort of, again, a, a kind of jump off to to think about the role that alcohol plays in, in an individual's life. Well, I think what Aaron said earlier in the program was was perfect. It gets people to ask the question, why? And for me, that's called mindful drinking, right? That comes down to, you know, everybody uh, has a different relationship with alcohol, as we also heard. And so for some people, it's worth sitting down and saying, hey, is this uh, okay for me? Is this something that is serving my goals? Is this something that is helping me in my life? Or do I have to kind of change course? And so I think that definitely dry January can help with that. Um, obviously, I think that's just one month. You know, there's there's 11 other months. And if, if for 11 other months, 
that question is sort of not asked as well, that can be problematic. So I think it's important for people to, you know, ask that question. And then if they, if they think, hey, drinking's okay with me, finding low alcohol, you know, kind of what we call sessionable drinks is great, right? Instead of having drinks that are high alcohol, having drinks that are kind of lower alcohol, being able to sit and enjoy your time with people, have all those positive emotions that really don't have much to do with alcohol at all. You know, it's about being together, drinking something delicious. And again, you can do that without alcohol. So the conversations I've had are mostly really positive. A lot of people, you know, um, are enjoying dry January more than they thought because, again, I don't think it's about what you're giving up. I think it's what you're gaining. And I think that there are so many great options that you're not really missing out. I mean, nobody is expected to or should sit alone at home drinking a soda and lime. You know what I mean? I think that now with all of these options, you can go out there and have a great experience, be social, um, connect with people, which is helpful in itself. Derek Brown, so good to reconnect with you uh, after these many years. I think it's been about a decade. Derek Brown, the owner of Positive Damage, Inc., a wellness company in Washington, also with us this hour. Christina Mayer, social epidemiologist and professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And Aaron White, neuroscientist and senior scientific advisor at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. If you or someone you love is facing a substance use disorder and would like confidential treatment, referral information, Call the National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 4357. Today's producer was Anna Casey. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. This is 1A.